While 2020 was a time of incredible change and disruption, 2021 will almost certainly be one of transition and renewal. We're entering into a new phase of the global health crisis as vaccines are being rolled out. A new administration has laid out an ambitious agenda to support American families and workers, and the economy continues to recover from last year's steep recession. So what might we expect as 2021 unfolds? And how could investors prepare for the changes ahead? Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Merrill Perspectives podcast. I'm Candace Browning, head of B of A Global Research. On this episode, we'll look at the key issues and events to watch for in the first few months of 2021 and how they could shape the path of the economy and the markets. We'll explore the top priorities for the new administration and Congress and also the sectors that could drive innovation and growth. And we'll share our insights on how investors can make sense of all of these changes. Joining me are Chris Heisey, Chief Investment Officer for Merrill and Bank of America Private Bank. Hi, Candace. And Savita Subramanian, Head of U.S. Equity and Quantitative Strategy and Head of ESG Research for B of A Global Research. Hi, Candace. And Ed Hill, Public Policy Executive for Bank of America. Hey, Candace. Great. Well, Ed, let's start with you. Uh, Joe Biden is now president of the United States and has begun to implement his core agenda. Both the House and Senate are essentially under Democratic control, which should help him to pass his key initiatives. So, Ed, what do you see as the most important priorities for the new administration in the coming weeks? So, Candace, on his first day in office, and in fact, for a few days before that, he came out with two major legislative proposals. One another COVID relief package that he priced around the $1.9 trillion range that includes money for state and local governments, more money for vaccine distribution and testing for COVID, money for schools, money for expanded unemployment benefits, and also an additional $1,400 to top off the recent $600 checks that went to Americans making less than $75,000, making it for a total of $2,000. So that's a $1.9 trillion package all in. The second bill that they came out with on his first day in office is an immigration bill. This bill is a you know rather progressive in terms of it would provide a pathway to citizenship for everyone who is in this country as of January 1st. And so that could have a big impact, obviously, on labor markets, big impact on consumption. So those are two big proposals he came out with. He's also indicated the administration's interest through executive orders of moving forward on a host of issues in the climate space, more in the immigration space, and also in the racial justice areas as well. So Ed, as a follow-on to that, um, what about clean energy or a large-scale infrastructure spending bill, both of which you know could be very important sources of new jobs, or potentially even tax reform or health care reform. How likely do you think it is for any of those types of really large-scale initiatives to gain momentum? Taking the last one first on health care reform, recent history suggests there hasn't been a great deal of agreement between the two parties. And even though Democrats control both chambers of Congress, they have such narrow majorities, they don't have big enough majorities, that I think that health care is a likely area that Congress can tackle. But two 
of the other areas you talked about, infrastructure and taxes, perhaps they can do something on that. The administration proposed a $3 trillion infrastructure package. Now, that'll be over multiple years, perhaps over a four or five year period. So consider, think of it, maybe $400 billion a year. And actually, that's going to wrap in many of the uh, the issues you talked about, like include money for green infrastructure and the like. You know, it'll remain to be seen whether or not they can get the votes to pass that and whether or not there'll be enough Republican support. But that is something I think you're going to see a big push from the administration. And they've also talked about adding tax provisions to that larger infrastructure bill to offset the cost of it, like raising the corporate tax, which uh, the Biden campaign had proposed raising from 21% to 28%, raising either capital gains and dividends to ordinary income rates for those making over a million dollars, or raising the payroll tax um, by putting taxes on both employers and employees that make over $400,000. Whether or not they be considered in a package later this year regarding infrastructure remains to be seen, but that's something that the uh, administration is is seriously considering. It does make sense that they would consider some changes to the tax code, considering the fact that, you know, $3 trillion here and $1.9 trillion there and spending, you've got a lot of spending. Um, and so the concern is obviously how to pay for all of it. Chris, let's turn to you and talk a little bit about the outlook for the economy. There are growing concerns over new variants of the coronavirus, and we've also seen setbacks in rolling out the vaccine. Millions of Americans are still unemployed, small businesses are struggling, but there are strong positive signs that the recovery is actually occurring. So what do you think is most needed to keep this recovery going? Yeah, Candace hit it at the start of the question, which is vaccine logistics. That covers everything from distribution to supply and demand to the access overall between the first dose and the second dose. And what's the timing of all that to hit at the heart of the working population of the economy? In order to get jobs back, the 10 million jobs that were lost, and let's just say half of them to get back, you're going to need a little bit more of the heart of the working population to begin to receive the vaccinations. That's number one. That's the bridge. And then the other part of the bridge is the relief packages, the second, third, or fourth relief packages and stimulus that Ed described. And last but not least, those jobs coming back. So that creates not just a bridge or sugar high to an economy, it creates a longer term growth trajectory to the economy. So that's probably what's most needed. Got it. That all makes sense. Thank you, Chris. Um, Savita, I'd like to get your take on how the market has been reacting to all these disruptions that we've experienced, which lately has been, as far as I can see, to just essentially shrug them off. And there are a number of investors who worry that we're in or approaching a bubble. So what's your perspective on this, Savita? Does your outlook um, you know, for corporate earnings support these levels of equity prices? A great question, Candace. And if you look at last year, despite the fact that we were in a global pandemic and, you know, one of the worst recessions ever, the market closed at all time highs. And that feels like a little bit of a disconnect. But I, I don't think it suggests in and of itself that we're in a bubble because the market correctly anticipated uh, an earnings recovery that we're likely to see this year. This year, we're looking for 20 percent earnings growth. 
So assuming that earnings are on track for a strong recovery, I would argue that the market is, you know, it's not cheap by any means, but it's not necessarily in bubble-like territory. Furthermore, when you think about the decision between stocks and bonds, despite the fact that the, the S&P 500 is trading at, at somewhat elevated valuations, the income potential of stocks still massively eclipses that of most comparable fixed income instruments on a quality adjusted basis. And, you know, just to put this into context, over 70% of stocks in the S&P 500 still pay a dividend where the yield is higher than that of the 10-year treasury. So we're still at really attractive levels of yield versus other asset classes. So Savita, let's uh, drill down from the overall market into the sectors that make up the market. What do you see for areas like industrials, technology, healthcare, consumer? What sectors do you see doing well as we move into 2021? And which ones do you think could be more challenged? I think everything we've heard so far from the administration and, you know, Ed's comments earlier suggests that, um, that, that policymakers are really focused on improving the economy and closing out inequities across income divides, um, which I think translates into a focus on the real economy rather than asset inflation. So investors, we think, are best suited uh, seeking out the most GDP-sensitive areas within the market, and these would be sectors like industrials, like energy, even financials could do well in that backdrop. We think that healthcare is another sector that could see more friendly government spending trends as well as corporate spending. So these are areas of the market that we think could benefit from, from the current economic and, uh, and, and fiscal environment. Now, the areas that could see some challenges are really kind of past leadership, if you will. So think about technology or communication services. These are areas where we think they could see challenges for a number of reasons. One is just simply the regulatory backdrop. And when you think about some of the anti-monopolistic rumblings that we've heard from policymakers, these could hit some mega cap tech stocks or at least provide an overhang on these stocks for the foreseeable future. On the consumer I think what we're really going to see over the next 12 months is a shift from consumption of hard goods, which has been relatively healthy throughout the recession, to more pent-up demand in the services areas within the consumer economy. Um, I also think that there could be some pent-up demand for a manufacturing spend for CapEx, especially if we do see um, any sort of infrastructure bill penned in Washington. Um, so those are some of the areas where we think we're going to see more benefit is outside of hard goods and into services and manufacturing and CapEx beneficiaries. Lots of change. Yep. So Ed, let's, um, let's swing back to you and uh, take a look overseas and uh, our foreign policy. First, how do you see the U.S.-China relationship evolving under President Biden? And then number two, you know, do you think that we're going to return to a more multilateral coalition building approach to foreign policy than we experienced during the Trump administration? Yeah, the way I sort of think about China is first to think about Europe. And what I mean by that, Candace, is that the U.S. is going to try and um, 
repair and strengthen our relationship with Europe and perhaps other allies in Asia so that they can build these multilateral coalitions that you referred to to help pressure China. I think that the Biden administration doesn't want to be soft on China. But what they want to do is get away from this sort of unilateral approach that the Trump administration pushed, whether it be sanctions or tariffs or uh, import restrictions, and really move towards a more multilateral approach to build an effective um, campaign against China, um, whether it be for concerns about their economic activities, whether it be concerns about their human rights activities, uh, or whether it be concerned about their military ambitions, sort of using using the rest of the world as allies in this process. Very interesting comment. Makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, so, so Chris, what's your outlook here? Are there, you know, other geopolitical issues or risks that you're watching for? Uh, most certainly. Here's an interesting thing to think about. What if the U.S. and China relationship is really a relationship of one that it's a race towards innovation? It's a race towards building the next wave of the modern economy, i.e. the digital economy. It's a race to secure the supply chain. It's a race to build semiconductor facilities. It's a race to secure Earth's rare metals to supply that. And if, in fact, we are going to a world in which we're more concerned about uh, infrastructure and climate solutions, and then the need to secure natural resources is going to be, in our estimation, a lot more important than it has in, in years past. So this is the paradigm shift that we all talk about. Uh, this is changing uh, the nature of what asset allocation may be uh, in the years ahead as well. But more importantly, it has a lot of implications ultimately on the thematic end of what could drive portfolios underneath the indices. On that note, let's talk about some of the larger themes that we follow, such as innovation and automation. You know, the move, as you mentioned, Chris, the move towards reshoring of supply chains and manufacturing and the growth of, you know, sustainable investing. So how do you and Savita see these types of underlying shifts affecting the outlook for growth in the markets. And Savita, let's, uh, let's start with you on that. Sure, I think the big change is that sustainable investors now have an ally in the White House. And the ramifications there are important. So, you know, within environmental, social, and governance or ESG investing, I think what we're starting to see within that that area is a shift from thinking more about governance towards a pivot towards environmental and social factors. So the E and the S in ESG are starting to really take center stage. Um, so, you know, if you think about it, we rejoined the Paris Accord. Climate change is top of mind for every investor. Managing emissions is a, is a, a topic that comes up more and more across all types of businesses, not just your, your commodities-oriented uh, business models. Moving to reshoring, this is a theme that we've been talking about for a while. Um, and I think it, there's a little bit of a nuanced shift rather than just, um, you know, bringing jobs back to the U.S., uh, really thinking about this more as establishing global ecosystems between countries with shared governance and, and social values. So, you know, I think we could 
see, um, you know, a pickup in relations outside of just bringing jobs and, and manufacturing back to the U.S., but also reforming alliances with regions of the world like um, Canada or Europe or areas where uh, we could we could start to see more of an ecosystem approach to to reshoring. And Chris, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think S Savita nailed it there when she talked about you know, looking at the, the E and the S within ESG, that's number one. Uh, number two, you talked about at the outset of the question, which is innovation and automation. And it is estimated, at least some of the initial work that we've done, that 14% of all jobs may be automated with, within the next nine years uh, through into 2030. Now, the knee-jerk reaction is to say, my goodness, if that's happening, actually, that, that it's going to hurt jobs. But the reality is, as you automate the jobs that can be automated, you create capacity for new jobs that are either supported by government expenditures, uh, i.e. Clean, clean energy, or simply capital flows where the greatest risk-adjusted return is. And companies uh, shift their business models to feed into that. But what absolutely is critical to all of this is to, to allow the economy flexibility to get through times of crisis like this, bring jobs back, be supportive by government expenditures where necessary, and then allow capitalism and shareholder activism at the same time to thrive. So we've talked about the economy and some of the initiatives uh, that we're going to see the administration do. Let's sort of switch gears a little bit and talk about actual steps that investors can take from here. Uh, Savita, what do you think is the potential path for equities um, are there any areas of the market that you think are really going to uh, gain traction? And also, you know, what about small cap versus large cap and value versus growth? Yeah, lots to unpack there. And as you mentioned, this is a year of big changes. We're, we're reopening the economy. We have a new administration in place. So changes are, are something that we should uh, get, get accustomed to. So let's talk about what, what those changes mean. Well, I think you know, re renewed hopes of an infrastructure bill, which was considered a non-starter under more of a gridlock scenario, would be a big benefit to industrials, which is one of the biggest sectors in the S&P 500 and, uh, and hasn't really had uh, its time in the sun for a while. Um, healthcare, I think, is also likely to draw dollars from both corporate and fiscal spending. So those are two sectors that we're bullish on um, for the year. Now, when you think about size and style, I think it really comes down to the economy. Everything we've heard so far out of Washington, D.C. suggests we're going to work on supporting the economy. Well, what does that mean for small caps? Small caps are much more economically sensitive than large caps. Therefore, a recovering economy and a recovering profit cycle, that's a great petri dish for smaller companies to outperform. Um, similar story for value, investors tend to go for the cheapest areas of growth when, the, when profits growth broadens out, and that's exactly what we're expecting over the next 12 months. So we would be emphatically in favor of small caps and value stocks, despite the fact that they've actually already begun to demonstrably outperform. Well, great. Well, thank you, Savita. And Ed, let's turn it back to you. I mean, you speak with clients on a very regular basis. What are they telling you or are their key concerns? 
Yeah, so um, getting back to what Savita and Chris spoke about earlier, climate is something I think investors are very interested in. And the Biden administration is going to take a comprehensive whole government approach. Also, the Biden administration is going to take a very um, aggressive approach at looking at antitrust related issues and mergers and acquisitions. This could have a particular impact on big tech. Uh, and one other area that uh, I get questions from investors a lot is regulation of the financial sector. So it's important to remember that financial regulators, and I'm particularly thinking about the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, and the Federal Reserve, the regulators serve fixed terms and can't be replaced by the president. And therefore, the pace of change in regulation of the financial sector may be a little slower than perhaps some other segments of the economy. Okay, great. Well, Chris, let's wrap it up with some portfolio guidance for our listeners. How do you recommend we invest in today's market? And can, can investors still find good opportunities in equities? And for people looking for income, what options should they consider given that interest rates are so low and probably likely will be low for a while? Yeah, as uh, Savita said, uh, there's a lot to unpack. Uh, we have a laundry list of risks that are still out there, and we do every year. So what do you do? Well, first and foremost, maintain a very high level of diversification. And that involves filling gaps in a portfolio that may have underperformed over the last year, over the last three years, maybe the last decade. And Savita mentioned many of those areas, small caps relative to large, some of the value areas relative to growth, and cyclicals in general relative to defensives. That also includes taking a look at markets outside the United States. They have significantly underperformed for the better part of the last decade. And if indeed we continue to see reflationary policies, it does support areas like the emerging markets. Uh, emerging markets are very cyclical. So this is more of a rebalancing and a tactical move. On a secular longer term basis, Candace, we see 2021 as the first year, the base year, where long-term investors begin to actively increase their risk budget. That means raising equities relative to fixed income and cash in their portfolios, simply because fixed income for the first time in many years, particularly longer dated yields, are backing up and rising, which could impact or pressure returns in fixed income. That means switching from income-producing areas that have generally been in fixed income to dividend-producing, dividend growth areas that have a thematic element to them across sectors within equities. We see this as a long-term theme, and we expect it to support portfolios in the years ahead. Thank you for that, Chris. And on, on that note, we'll end it. Chris, Savita, and Ed, Thank you so much for sharing your insights. I know we'll all be watching very closely as events unfold. And thank you all for listening to this edition of the Merrill Perspectives podcast. To learn more about our latest insights on the markets, please visit ml.com. And you can sign up for Merrill Perspectives wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast was published on February 8th, 2021. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. The information contained in this report does not constitute an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment products. You should carefully consider all relevant factors in making these decisions, and you are encouraged to consult with any of your professional advisors.
Any opinions or other information correspond to the date of this recording and are subject to change. The views expressed are not necessarily those of Bank of America Private Bank or Merrill. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or any recommendation from any Bank of America Private Bank or Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith entity to the listener. The information is general in nature and is not intended to provide personal investment advice. The information does not take into account the specific investment objectives, financial situation, and particular needs of any specific person who may receive it. Investors should understand that statements regarding future prospects may not be realized. Asset allocation, diversification, and rebalancing do not ensure a profit or protect against loss in declining markets. Equity securities are subject to stock market fluctuations that occur in response to economic and business developments. Stocks of small cap companies pose special risks, including possible illiquidity and greater price volatility than stocks of larger, more established companies. Investments in foreign securities, including ADRs, involve special risks, including foreign currency risk and the possibility of substantial volatility due to adverse political, economic, or other developments. These risks are magnified for investments made in emerging markets. Investing in fixed income securities may involve certain risks, including the credit quality of individual issuers, possible prepayments, market or economic developments, and yields and share price fluctuations due to changes in interest rates. When interest rates go up, bond prices typically drop, and vice versa. Impact investing and or environmental, social, and governance ESG managers may take into consideration factors beyond traditional financial information to select securities, which could result in relative investment performance deviating from other strategies or broad market benchmarks, depending on whether such sectors or investments are in or out of favor in the market. Further, ESG strategies may rely on certain values-based criteria to eliminate exposures found in similar strategies or broad market benchmarks, which could also result in relative investment performance deviating. Investments in a certain industry or sector may pose additional risk due to lack of diversification and sector concentration. Dividend payments are not guaranteed and are paid only when declared by an issuer's board of directors. The amount of a dividend payment, if any, can vary over time. Capital expenditures, CapEx, are funds used by a company to acquire, upgrade, and maintain physical assets, such as property, plants, buildings, technology, or equipment. Bank of America, Merrill, their affiliates, and advisors do not provide legal, tax, or accounting advice. Clients should consult their legal and or tax advisors before making any financial decisions. B of A Global Research is research produced by B of A Securities Inc., B of A S, and or one or more of its affiliates. B of A S is a registered broker-dealer, member SIPC, and wholly owned subsidiary of Bank of America Corporation, B of A Corp. The Chief Investment Office, CIO, provides thought leadership on wealth management, investment strategy, and global markets, portfolio management solutions, due diligence, and solutions oversight and data analytics. CIO viewpoints are developed for Bank of America Private Bank, a division of Bank of America NA, Bank of America, and Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith Incorporated, MLPFNS or Merrill, a registered broker-dealer, registered investment advisor, and a wholly owned subsidiary of Bank of America Corporation. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith Incorporated, also referred to as MLPFNS or Merrill, makes available certain investment products sponsored, managed, distributed, or provided by companies that are also affiliates of B of A Corp. MLPFNS is a registered broker-dealer, registered investment advisor, member SIPC, and a wholly owned subsidiary of B of A Corp. Bank of America Private Bank is a division of Bank of America NA, member FDIC, and a wholly owned subsidiary of B of A Corp. Investment products are not FDIC insured, are not bank guaranteed, and may lose value. 
This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Neither Bank of America Private Bank or Merrill, nor any of their affiliates, make any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. And any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. Copyright 2021 Bank of America Corporation. All rights reserved.